0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Live to Walk Again podcast. This is not a numbered episode. We're just going to go ahead and re-release an interview that we thought was really great. And it kind of corresponds with another interview we're going to be doing with a neuroscientist from the University of Iowa this coming week. Um, He he has a study that uh, was published in the New York Times. Uh, relating to REM sleep and uh, I guess how babies kind of learn to move in the womb and like just want to talk to him about any I guess correlation with the spinal cord and neural pathways and things like that uh, that he kind of touched on in this article that I found super interesting. Ricardo actually found it and sent it over to me. Um, really looking forward to this interview so Uh, We decided to re-release the Andrew Pelling uh, interview from probably a year and a half ago, maybe. He is the doctor uh, out of Canada, I believe Ottawa, who is using produce essentially to bridge the gap between spinal cord Uh, between the spinal cord injury um because he was having a barbecue one night looked at a piece of asparagus after he cut the ends off of it and saw kind of the channels that were running through the asparagus and thought hey this might be like the perfect channel between the two sides of the injury and he's had a lot of success working with rats and um you know, I think that it, it's a very promising thing that he's working on and you know, just for anybody who may have missed that episode, I, I really want to to get this one out there so people can hear it ahead of the interview that we have coming up next week. So hope everyone is well. Uh we sorry for not being out here the last couple of weeks. We had, you know, all kinds of stuff going on with the with the live to walk again family with uh, scheduling conflicts with canceled interviews things like that um, that just you know life gets in the way sometimes but i hope you guys all enjoy this interview one more time and you know check it out share it with your friends like it rate it review it do all that good stuff for us we really appreciate all of your help and we will be back next week. Looking forward to it. Hope you all have a great week. In the meantime, and we will be back then. Thank you so much. This week on the Live to Walk Again podcast, we are lucky enough to visit with Andrew Pelling. Uh, Andrew's a professor at the University of Ottawa, a TED senior fellow, a fellow of the Royal Society of Biology, an honorary research fellow at the University of Western Australia, and a member of the College of the Royal Society of Canada. Uh, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot for having me.
0: Um, I'm so excited about this I've been uh, showing everybody that will watch uh, your, your TED video uh, regarding the, the asparagus scaffold for the, the spinal cord research um, but I wanted to know you yeah, before we get into that can you kind of just let give everybody a, a, an idea of what what you all do at the at the pelling lab there
1: Pardon <laughs> me yeah for sure um... So, yeah, we're a research group uh, at the University of Ottawa, and um, I approach scientific research a little differently than a lot of academics um, in that, when you know, when I was a kid, and I think a lot of kids are like this, we grow up very curious about the whole world, and we have a lot of questions. And over time, as you become an adult, a lot of that gets beaten out of us, and um, I think that's a part of a famous Carl Sagan quote. Um, and I really wanted to start a research lab that was driven just by curiosity and, and not so much about solving problems or uh, maybe treating a specific disease or anything like that, but but rather just simply asking questions and using the tools of the scientific method to create new knowledge in the world. And I had this fairly, uh, maybe a little bit naive idea or maybe optimistic idea that um that discovery and curiosity would ultimately be the driver of innovation. And I didn't know specifically what type of innovation or where the applications would come, but they would come. And I would rely on human curiosity as this powerful tool. And, um, and yeah, that's led the lab into so many different directions. We've worked on many different things from really fundamental studies of like how do cells feel forces? Like, you know, do they, does a single cell feel it when you poke it? to, you know, how, how does a tumor form when you start with one single cell in a, in a sheet of healthy cells and, and building that's, these types of studies have necessitated us to build different devices, to control these things. So we've had to learn lots of electronics and building things and lots of cell biology. And, um, and eventually we got into sort of our best known work, which was, um, sort of a joke, but we, we, to be honest, we, we started thinking about how could we grow human or animal cells inside of plant tissues and uh and yeah and that that led to some of our more recent discoveries that um that I'm sure we'll talk about today
0: yeah yeah so you know I I, in the the TED uh, talk video that that came out I guess in December of 2020 um, Mm -hmm. you talked like initially i guess you used an apple a wedge of apple and i try to explain this to people and andrew and they're just like what are you talking about it's so what i you know i show them send them a video or whatever and they're like oh my god that's crazy so you know talk about how that study that and the apple um be using a wedge of an apple for um creating a, a human ear um, how that came about and then we'll, we'll kind of get into the the spinal cord stuff sure after that
1: sure um so, if, to be honest, uh, a, a lot of our work gets inspired by science fiction and, you know, bad um, science fiction movies. <laughs> and there was a, there's this old movie called Little Shop of Horrors, which was about this plant that um, ate people and uh, it sang and its name was Audrey Too. And people, you can go online and find images of this I thing. I
0: remember that. I'm old enough to definitely remember that one. <laughs>
1: it's like a giant venus flytrap type of thing and we started you know we were looking at it and it was really cool because it was very much part plant and had leaves and it was green and and at this other side of that it's it also had a tongue and teeth and sort of had mammalian or human characteristics and we started to wonder you know could we grow something like this in the lab <laughs> and this is really honestly like how so many of our projects start and uh, and I and, you know that's really fun that part here the next step of being a scientist is really well developing a hypothesis and a methodology and objectives and measurable outcomes like how do we take the next steps and um, that's the part of science I love uh, and we start to hypothesize that perhaps we could take plant tissues and strip away all the plant cells and, and DNA and leaving you with just the fibrous part of the plant you know the stuff that gets stuck in your teeth or, you know And, and that material cellulose would be something we could grow, you know, cells onto human cells onto, uh, as a scaffold. And, um, you know, it it took us about a year of failing and (laughs) struggling through that project. Um, but we eventually cracked it and, um, we discovered, well, for the, you know, we discovered for the first time that you could actually use apple flesh, the, the, fleshy part of the apple as a scaffolding material to grow cells um and you know this didn't come out of the blue there's a whole field out there of biomaterials research where you make scaffolding to replace body parts and reconstruct damaged tissues and uh, one of the most famous examples of this is uh Probably from the mid-90s was this uh, ear that was made from cartilage from a cow, I believe, and it was implanted into an animal to show that it was compatible. Um, and a colleague of mine was asking me, you know, could you recreate that study? And in this case, now that you've got plant materials, you don't have to use animal sources, and, and therefore it might be better, it might be more well accepted by the body and it's more ethical and wouldn't that be cool it'd be cheaper as well and uh so then we started yeah we the you know this we sought to kind of go after this prime example and and we carved really hand carving human ear shapes from an apple (laughs) stripping out all the apple cells and DNA and then putting human cells into it and that was the kind of really that was the light bulb moment that was like wow you know we we can actually Um, do this and and show that it worked and um, at the time it was pretty (laughs) unconventional (laughs) and it it still is weird I know that but um, but that started a whole new field uh, of research for us. Wow
0: that's so cool and so and then with the asparagus uh, study for uh, you know I guess you you, in the video you say you had chopped off the end (laughs) An asparagus getting ready for dinner, and you know, talk, talk about that. And how how that kind of clicked in your brain?
1: Yeah, I think you know once you've once you've kind of gone down the rabbit hole of growing cells on on apples, um, any plant becomes fair game <laughs> at this point. And we were literally um, you know in the grocery store and, and buying all sorts of plants, and you know the label would look like a farmer's market. Honestly, just, and we we're trying everything, uh, really just to see what would work and what wouldn't. And I honestly, I was um, at home during, just during that time when we were first making these discoveries. So this is probably 2013 or so, um, 2014. Um, And I I was cooking, I was making asparagus and I cut the ends off um, like most people do. and, um, And I was looking at the ends and what you can see are all these long channels or capillaries Um, they're the same things you find in celery like a lot of school kids you'll put celery in a glass of like food coloring and you'll see the food coloring move up these vascular bundles Um, and the asparagus was full of these things and the asparagus is roughly the size of a human spinal cord roughly and I started to wonder you know could we take advantage of these channels to potentially guide axons and neurons and regeneration in the spinal
0: cord and um, that's
1: where the idea came from
0: (laughs) you know it's i've been doing this podcast now for a little over two years Hmm. and you know we do we try to talk to as many research people that we can get on on the show and i feel like that's the main uh you know scaffolding is the main issue with i think anyway or one of the probably top couple of issues facing spinal cord injuries is figuring out how to get the the cells to grow in the. you know you can inject stem cells in there but if you can't get them to grow in the right direction yeah. then you're, you know it doesn't really do any good um so you know had you I, I, I guess that's a huge key for this thing and then had you thought at all about spinal cord injury research prior to you know just <laughs> Is stumbling upon this asparagus looking like a, a spinal cord uh no not really i mean um it, this is
1: you know part of when i started my lab i started my lab in 2008 so like 13 years ago or so and i had this hypothesis that if i just let the group follow its curiosity these sort of serendipitous things would begin to happen over time and one of the things we had been thinking a lot about and, and playing around with for years was how do cells feel shapes? How do they move through environments in 3D? And, um, and all of that knowledge, that's not as, you know, it doesn't, you don't get Ted talks for this and doesn't get the press, but all of that knowledge suddenly came back. Cause now we had, we were dealing with scaffolds again, three-dimensional objects that had channels. So, and we had already done all these studies of how cells move through channels and, um, and so certainly in as a scientist you're reading the literature and I, I had knowledge of like a lot of the scaffold chains in them and, and that's certainly not an original idea like you say um, but that was in the background and you know from from our own studies what we were noticing with plant scaffolds specifically was when we implanted them, they were incredibly inert so we just didn't they didn't suffer from, the classic problems of rejection and fibrosis and, and things like that. And, and in fact, actually without even trying, you know, blood vessels were forming inside of them cells were infiltrating um, and they were really becoming integrated with the body really, really well. Um, some of our first samples that we sent to a pathologist, uh, they actually thought we sent healthy tissues. They didn't realize we had sent scattles. Um So we, again, just kind of stumbled on this following our curiosity. And so the idea was there, but I definitely had no background in spinal cord injury research or or any knowledge. And, you know, one of the things my lab does, I think really well is we collaborate uh, and across broad disciplines, it's a necessity for the type of work we do. And so I, you know, kind of got up the courage and I looked for, well, who's, who's the top neurosurgeon near me? Um, and uh, this is Dr. Eve Tsai. She's here in Ottawa. She's one of the top neurosurgeons in Canada. And I just sort of reached out and said, can we, can we have a meeting? And I, I was sure she was going to throw me out of her office. Uh, but I brought her, um, me and, and a couple of members of the team, we brought her some scaffolds that we'd made from asparagus. We hadn't tried anything yet and sort of walked her through the ideas. And, um, and she looked at me like sort of point blank and, and said, you know, can I can I use this today? Can I put this in one of my patients? <laughs> You're crazy. Like, I, I could. You know, I didn't appreciate it at the time, but now I do. It's like the potential for therapy, and and the number of people out there who are, um, you know, living with spinal cord injury. It's. Uh, I can appreciate what, why she asked me that at the time, but I, you know, I convinced her. Let's let's maybe. You know, your lab does animal studies on this and can do. Has the expertise to do the preclinical validation, and um, we can make the scaffolds. So let's collaborate on this.
0: Wow, wow! And, and so um, I know in the in the TED talk, you talk about the doing some uh, studies on rats. Mm. How that? So how long from inception to rat studies? <laughs> like how long did that take? And then. And talk about, because in the rat studies, it, you know, I guess you only, you just used like sterilized, stripped down asparagus, right? No That's stem right. cells, nothing like that. So, yeah, t- talk about the, the rat studies and how long, I guess, it took for those to get started and then how yeah.
1: So those started in about 2015. Um. As you might be able to appreciate, it was not easy to get funding for this. It was pretty out there. Um, and I have to thank uh, the University of Iowa for the initial support for this, um, specifically our former Vice President of Research, uh, Dr. Mona Nemer, who you know I, I met with her and I said, like we really have an opportunity to do something spectacular here or it's going to fail completely. <laughs> and and uh, she seeded the, the study um, with some seed funding and, and got us going. Um, now it wasn't until really last year that we'd finished the study. It, it took five years and mainly because we started to see positive results pretty early on. And I was very skeptical. Um, I think we all were like this, just like nothing about this makes sense. Like, I, come on, this is such a difficult, how is it possible that we can come along with a piece of asparagus and, and see some positive recovery in motor function? And and so really actually the next several years was just me and the team sort of demanding that we repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. We've got to validate because like something like this can't be right. And this is science, that's the scientific process. It's just this process of eliminating alternative explanations. And we eventually got to this point where it really looked like the scaffold was having a a therapeutic effect in these animals, in in the type of injury that we were inducing. And, um, and that's when we started to feel a bit more comfortable talking about it last year when, when we released the study. So, um, and yeah, and like you mentioned, uh, that's a good point about the stem cells. We weren't using stem cells. We weren't confounding the results with lots of therapeutics and everything else you could add. I really wanted to see what does the scaffold do itself as a sort of baseline. And then if it's got positive effects, maybe we can build upon that. And, um, and yeah, so we were, you know, the rats are not perfectly walking. It's just not some miracle cure or anything like that, but um, it was definitely having a, a positive effects uh, in line with other scaffolds that relied on stem cells. So it had
0: to have stem cells present. So uh, that was pretty cool. Right. Uh, when did you first start noticing that um, it seemed to be works? I know in the video you said, <laughs> I think, eight weeks later um, on the rats that you showed in the video that they were starting to And like you said it's not perfect they're really still struggling a bit but they're definitely let their legs their hind legs are, are moving mm-hmm. um, how long before you you started noticing some of that stuff was it pretty early on or did it take you know i, mean, I know you said you were doing testing for the better part of five years so yeah um it, Yeah, we were no,
1: this is the thing, you know, I we couldn't, I wasn't, I was unsure, or like, are we just anthropomorphizing here? Are we projecting onto the animals? But it did seem like, you know, by four weeks, maybe a little bit earlier than that, that they were displaying signs of uh, their rear limbs moving that didn't look like reflex or some, you know, just a weird thing. And it also, certainly, again, this is, <laughs> not totally humanizing these, these animals right now, but it looked, it it really seemed to be behaving in a way that was reminiscent of like pins and needles in your leg. Like this sort of kind of looked like they were sort of being bothered by their legs and, you know, scratching at them and then eventually starting to move them in a more coordinated fashion. And, um, but yeah, it was, it was, you know, around that time, three to four weeks, we were sort of noticing things. (laughs) And I remember the first study, um, Uh, The postdoc, Dr. Charles Currier, and uh, the PhD student, Daniel Modulewski, he's the first author of the paper, and he really kind of led the study. Um, They were noticing this in the first cohort of animals, and they they called me into the animal facility in the middle of the night. You know, like, they couldn't believe what they were seeing in the cages and uh, to the point where they had to get me out of bed and get over there. And it was... I don't know. It's one of those moments in your career that you just probably would never forget. Like I couldn't, couldn't believe what was happening.
0: That's so amazing. That's so amazing. Uh, I did want to backtrack for one second back to, um, talking about the kind of the stability of the, the scaffold itself. Mm. Um, and and how I guess the, you know, the, the, it's not gonna, your body's not going to try to reject it. You mentioned, because it's a, I guess a plant material that's been stripped down. Um, what do you, I guess, what do you think the, the benefit of that is? I mean, cause it's going to, then it's going to, it's going to be stable constantly. It's never going to basically disintegrate. Is that, that, that's what I gathered anyway. Is that kind of the the case with these?
1: Yeah. I mean, we don't, you know, we don't have data from 20 years of an implant. So I can't be a hundred percent sure here, but from everything we've seen so far, um, the plant cellulose is interesting. It's, um, it's actually crystalline. It's, it's, it's got a crystal structure. It's, it's very stable and inert. It, it, it's very hard for things to get at it um, and to modify it or dissolve it. And, and this is one of the reasons why most people uh, at the time at least, would never have used it or even thought to use it because the sort of dogma of biomaterials and, and the ideal scenario is that a biomaterial might be there for a limited time, allow your body to repair and then eventually would dissolve or go away. Um, and that, I mean, that makes sense. Um, this is a little bit um, <laughs> unconventional because it's really probably not going to go away. It's very long lasting. and, and uh, But unlike many long-lasting materials, it's very inert. So it doesn't it doesn't go through these processes of rejection and, and becoming encapsulated in, in weird ways. And in fact just sort of sits there and just provides structure for the surrounding cells um, without doing too much else. Um, and so that stability I think is really important. Um, when many biomaterials break down, they release side products or they go through these transition products and and those can cause inflammation and and further problems. And because of that dissolving process, resorption process, and obviously in something sensitive like a spinal cord, that that might be an issue, right? Um, In fact, it was actually something that um, Eve uh, was saying to us um, when we first met her, Um, she had been asking uh, bioengineers for quite a while to develop a scaffold that did not dissolve. She wanted something that was stable because in her study, she was noticing that as these things broke down, you know, they would change the pH and that would have sort of toxic effects on the cells. And, um, and I think that's what got her attention about it. It's like for, all of a sudden, you know, something she'd been asking for for many years, um, uh, we came along with. And, uh, I think that's maybe gave us a bit of credibility in our eyes, but uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So in the video, I know you said, and this is from eight months ago or so, obviously, um, you said that in the next two years, you're hoping to start human studies with this mm-hmm. where, I mean, is that still the game plan? Like where, where does that stand for you right
1: now? Yeah, for sure. Um, let me just for transparency, like, um, the, this technology, we licensed it out to a, a startup company. I'm a co-founder of that company. I'm the chief scientific officer there. Um, so just so everybody is aware. Um, and and really the clinical translation of this, it's it's too expensive and too hard for an academic lab to do. It was not the place for this. That's why we created this company. Um, and yeah, that, that still is the game plan. Uh, we're right now um, basically going through the, a regulatory process to show safety. So that's a key hurdle and that's gonna be a key milestone for us to then take the next steps into the human trials and all that. I think the two-year timeline is still um, realistic, but I mean, again, these are, it's gonna start small, it's gonna be slow,
0: um, and Do you think uh, COVID set you guys back at all with trying to get to that point? Because um, I know up in, in Canada, you're dealing with a little bit more yeah. restrictions than we are down here in the United States.
1: Yeah, I would say, like you know, honestly, the FDA has been amazing. We we were um, really thrilled to be sort of designated a breakthrough device, and that that does put us on an accelerated timeline with the FDA. But this all happened <laughs> right at COVID, the start of COVID, and obviously the FDA was kind of preoccupied with right. many things at that point. Um, so yeah, th- there's obviously some delays there, but. Um, You know, more or less, I'm still pretty uh, optimistic about the future here. This is what we're driving to. Uh, And our key thing, what we've got our focus on right now is just doing all of our diligence to ensure we've passed every single safety test and assay that that is required um, so that we can then move into the human trials. We don't we no matter what safety is going to be first. Right. We won't just launch into a human trial no matter what. So. but you know, this, this is the, uh, culmination of, I don't know, five, six years of animal studies and preclinical work. So now, now it's kind of crunch time for us.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's that gotta be exciting for you for sure. Uh, you know, are you going to try to be, uh, try to work then, uh, with the study initially right there in Ottawa? Um, or is it, do you know where, where it's going to start yet or, um, it won't be just in Ottawa for sure. Um, it's
1: not possible really. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, right now, uh, for our our breakthrough designation, we're really only, um, you know, we've got a subpopulation of people that we can potentially treat, right? So these are acute uh, within 96 hours of the injury, you know, very, um, and in um, sort of thoracic region. and, And that's, you know, so it's a, it's a narrow band. So, you know the and the number of course the number of people who might qualify you know these are sort of parameters we're we're gonna have to find out um and we're working with a number of spinal cord agencies and foundations to to design for this but i suspect it'll be north america but these we don't know yet we don't specifically know yet
0: okay okay Uh, and you know talking about how with the rat study that there was no stem cells or any kind of um, you know, booster to to make the, the cells grow on the on the uh, um, scaffolding or anything. Is that going to be the same with the with the human study, or are you going to kind of boost that with with some kind of stem cells, or you know, what's that going to look like? Do or do you even know yet?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think we really know yet. I my instinct, you know, is again to use the scaffold alone. It's also again it. it once you introduce stem cells and therapeutics, you've, you know, you've magnified the number of safety tests and all of that and time it will take to get there. And I, I think, you know, we need to know what the scaffold is going to do uh, by itself. Um, we've got pretty good evidence of what's going to happen in, in animals and in, in also in larger animals. And um, uh, I think that's the place to start to, to get things moving. Um, And as we, you know, that's the really nice part about, we've had a great experience working with the FDA actually. And this is what's I think really cool is, is is that we have this ability to go back and forth with data and just make decisions um, in real time with, you know, always thinking about like, how do we get this to humans as fast as possible? What's the fastest way there? And I think that's without stem cells for now. Uh, I think it obviously stem cells and therapeutics, you know, if, the, if they, you know, actually have benefit, then why not start adding these things and studying that. But again, part of our diligence, part of our rigor here is that we, we start with the animal trials. We go through those, we gather the evidence and, and take the steps necessary to well ultimately protect
0: people um, and
1: hopefully create something that's longer lasting in the
0: future. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wanted to know, Andrew, um, having the, the technology designated as a, a breakthrough medical device by the FDA, what does that, I mean, both mean for you, for you and your study? I mean, that's got to be just ex- super exciting for you guys and, and show that you're really doing great work. But um, yeah, I mean, just talk about the process of that and, and what kind of benefits that provides you and and the lab or you and the company that as you're trying to get this thing rolled out
1: yeah I, very much this was driven by the company and um you know it's again expensive and time-consuming process and involved uh, process um the breakthrough device ultimately what it means is it accept, it makes it gives us an ability to interact with the fda very quickly so you know rather than submitting huge packages of data and and that take years to gather and then many months to review. We can go in much quicker. Let's talk about one particular aspect of the study. Here's a, a small package of data. Let's talk back and forth about this and um, work collaboratively with the FDA to design both the sort of benchmarks we need to meet, as well as what you know, what how to plan the human study. What does that look like? What are the parameters that you you know are going to be approved? Um, and and this sort of speeds up the interaction, and I feel like it is more collaborative, and, and that's really actually a nice way to work with the regulator, um, as opposed to sort of combative or you know pushing and pulling. But, um, so that's what it really means, and it's it's a it's some valid you know it's really validation for us and and the potential of the technology. Uh, we still have to prove it, um, but yeah, that's. Um, I think, you know, as as you know, um, there really isn't a solution out there that's become the gold standard, um, and these are the this is the type of situation that the breakthrough designation was built for, for accelerating technologies um, in these areas where there just isn't um, an intervention
0: that seems to work right now,
1: or at least broadly
0: works um, and gets us going. Right. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I just have a couple, a uh, few more questions here for you, Andrew. Um, <laughs> you know, I did want to know, and this is such a, so interesting. I feel like I keep you on, on, on the line all day, ask you different questions about this, but, um, I know your time is valuable, so I won't keep you too long, but so you mentioned that acute, acute thoracic injuries is kind of your focus at this point. Um, somebody like myself who has been, paralyzed for 20 years and, and I'm a C-level, um, quadriplegic. So, um, you know, what are the, uh, do you think this is something that can eventually work for, I mean, obviously you're dealing with scar tissue with older injuries and things like that, but, um, you know, I guess talk about the, the possibilities for, for long-term spinal cord injuries with this, with this, uh, breakthrough.
1: Yeah, I, I fully appreciate what you're saying here. Um, and what, Anybody who's living with SCI, you know, has been living with it for a while, is thinking and feeling right now. Um, We work very closely with patient advocates and 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 other and and people just who live with this on a daily basis from all aspects of of the injury. And um, I I do think there is hope there. I so we're going back to academic lab on, I'm putting my professor hat on now. And that's specifically what we're studying at the moment. Um, we're trying that, and that's the beauty here is the academic lab can kind of take on the higher risk, more unknown work, whereas the company can take the, the most, the short-term immediate things that need to happen. And then hopefully when the higher risk, big open questions about chronic disease or injuries, and things like that are more well worked out, they can we can transfer that technology to the company and then they can move through the clinic. Um, we're working on that now. Yeah, scar tissue is a big question we're thinking about a lot. Um, And, you know, in speaking with different neurosurgeons, there's a lot of of hesitancy to cut into that or, you know, uh, especially if you have some function there. Uh, So the surgical intervention needs to be thought about and worked out. That's something we're looking at uh, and studying right now. I, I don't have an answer on that right now. Um, as well as you know really reformulating um, the type of material itself like how do, if you've got a big block of scar tissue how how do you get in there is a solid piece of asparagus really the best way to go you know these are the types of fundamental studies we're doing right now uh, we actually just got a, a, a large donation um, that just started this month last month um, to study this over the next three years and hopefully develop some solutions uh, again in rats, uh, but that'll
0: form the basis of next steps um, in terms of clinic. Right. And that must be difficult to look at uh, long-term injuries because a rat's lifespan obviously is so much shorter than a human. So, yeah. um, you know, I don't know if that, if you can like factor it down, by like, well, a rat lives this long, human lives this long. Like, let's say, you know, this is this is how long the things, the, the rat has been injured, so we can, but I've, scar tissue probably doesn't develop that fast either on, on them compared to humans that have been dealing with it for 20 years. So. Yeah,
1: I, I don't know that, you know, rats are not humans, obviously. <laughs> and, you know, I think this is something very few people talk about, but the reality is that rat studies are great. They're fine as a start, but they obviously aren't human. And how much translation actually happens is, is, is small. Um, that said, you know, in the injury models we have available to us, we, we can generate that scar tissue and we're actually also, so the initial study was a full transection. So, you know, obviously that's not the most common type of injury. Um, but it was a good place to start as a sort of the worst case scenario. We're now moving into more contusion, compression injuries, um, that are a bit more complex and we're studying both acute, like immediate intervention, as well as letting, uh, scar tissue form over a period of weeks um, and that that is actually well more or less well defined in terms of the time period so we can wait whole months and you have a pretty solid scar there um, and what we're trying to work out now is like how exactly do we intervene in there and, and can we you know use some of our new formulations for that that injury but
0: uh, that's going to take a bit of time for us to, to really work out Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. I'm, this is so exciting to me, Andrew. I'm, I'm <laughs> telling you this, and I I do appreciate you coming on. Um, you know, I did want to note the, I guess the last question I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, in the, in the TED talk, you show uh, a piece of this asparagus in a Petri dish that's been sterilized and, and the, the extra plant matter removed. Um, is this going to be something that you make for, is this going to be something that the company can just mass produce or, and then the doctor can trim it down or do whatever they need to do with it? Or is this something that's going to be made on an individual basis and then, you know, shipped out as quickly as possible to get to the the patient that that was newly injured?
1: Yeah. Great question. (laughs) I mean, you just nailed it. Um, so both, both options are on the table right now. Um, we're still working on, you know, really what the best solution is here. There's, um, uh, there's positive, there's pluses and minus to both situations. Um, we're not into the stage yet where we're like full on, like, let's, let's become the global supplier of spinal cord scaffolds. So we're not there yet. That's gonna take more time. Um, and it's gonna take some time to really understand you know how how does a hospital want to work? How do the clinicians want to work in this case? Um, my instinct is it would be better to have these already delivered and on site. So because these are trauma situations, um, whereas you know obviously someone who's been like you that has been living with this for years, you know potentially that is you know we can we can do some imaging first and understand the injury site and what the scar tissue looks like potentially customized there but uh, these aren't we haven't made these firm decisions yet yeah i see i see Uh, a good question (laughs) (laughs) i
0: try I try uh well yeah you know professor andrew pelling i think uh, i'm hoping that next time we talk i'm adding uh you know cured spinal cord injuries on on the list of uh list of all the things in your bio but well
1: <laughs> i mean that's the thing you know the the bio and the titles and all that uh, you know it's this is all the result of just i've just been so lucky to work with such a great team of people that's honestly it's this is you know this is what science is so good at doing you know um you bring together people we use our curiosity and imagination and then we use the rigor of the scientific method to make discoveries and innovate and it's why I'm a scientist and I, and I, I, I really, I'm trying to keep myself in check here. Like, I don't want to give false hope, but it is really exciting. These discoveries. I'm, I'm just, I feel really lucky. I feel very responsible and or a large sense of responsibility to see this through and, and to work with these teams. Cause like, honestly, there's a big team of people at the university, big team of people at the company, there's investors and the people who've taken the chance on us and are giving us the chance to, try to, to make a dent in this problem and improve
0: the world around us so that's yeah. no, a beautiful thing it really is and, and you know for myself and i'm sure most of the spinal cord injury community we definitely salute you guys and are appreciative of what you're doing um you know for anybody that wants to to follow and kind of get updates on what exactly you guys are doing what's the best way to do that um i don't know if it's through social media or your website or, or you know go ahead and tell us how to how to keep uh keep on track with you yeah i mean
1: um social media twitter and instagram at pelling lab um there's a pelling lab newsletter as well that you can sign up for and uh and the website, of course. Is, the social media is probably the best way <laughs>
0: okay okay well I'll, I'll definitely link all of uh, all your social medias in with the uh with the podcast when i post it in the next few days here but Uh, Yeah, Professor Pelling, thank you so much for for joining me. I really do appreciate it. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think you guys are doing amazing work. Thanks so
1: much. Thanks a lot for uh, the chance to share our work.
0: Yeah, thank you. We'll talk soon.
1: Okay, you too.